Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Where were you nine years ago, August 17th, 2007? That's where I marked the beginning of the financial crisis. Some debate about which date to use, but I'll go with the 17th. That big move we saw in three-month T-bill. I remember uh, interviewing David Malpass and Alan Meltzer on the afternoon of the 17th, nine years ago. That was an extraordinary interview with Professor Meltzer about how the central bank of the United States would come to the rescue. That'll be one of our themes through all of this morning. Michael McKee and Tom Key, thrilled you're with us worldwide, particularly thrilled you're with us if you're part of Global Wall Street and you've survived uh, nine years. There is no one more perfect to talk about nine years back and look nine years forward than Jason Trennett of Strategus Research for years with Ed Hyman at ISI. And then one day he had to walk into Ed's office and say, <laughs> I want to set up my shop because, Ed, I want to set up Strategus Research so there could be a financial crisis right, right. six I, months later. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, sometimes you're better. We often joke that if we were such great financial, uh, you know, uh, seers, we would have been too afraid to leave Ed and the cozy home that we had uh, developed there. But the earned home. Yeah. The, the, you know, the irony is that it wound up being, it's a good thing we didn't know there was going to be a financial crisis because we wouldn't have set up Strategus. And then we, we benefited in some ways by the financial <laughs> crisis to the extent to which macro, we're talking about it before, became very right. extraordinarily important. Then we hooked up with Dan Clifton, who runs our Washington office, and the, the entire yeah. investment world is largely being driven by Washington. So do we see. blame Dan Clifton for Trump or Dan Clinton? Is that what we well, blame I for th- this election? You know, I, you know I'll bl- I'll, I, I'm going to blame, we're going to talk about it a little bit, but I think the elites and I think central banks, I think a lot of the benefits are, are going to the wrong people, and I, I think a lot of average, everyday people are getting fed up. That's right where I want to go to, but let's first do a quick look back nine years ago. I remember speaking with Professor Rubini in Davos at a quiet evening bar. We were sharing a beverage of our choice, and we it was amazing how he and to an extent me, we got it right. We saw it coming. Jason, what we didn't see coming was the amplitudes involved. Were you in any way prepared no. for the synodal amplitudes of this no, crisis? Absolutely. I mean, and, and what you're talking about uh, in particular, I think that, you know, it's one thing to worry about risk assets. When, when you start worrying about cash, uh, which is what happened a year later, you know, after Lehman uh, failed, people, you saw $400 billion <clears throat> move out of money market funds because yeah. people were worried about cash. Um, that's that's in the you know, you're too far away from the barter system at that point. I mean, so um, we, we certainly didn't see it coming. And um, I'm not sure a lot of other people did either. You have been long and right forever. As you mentioned, this has been the elite's bull market. Is this a bubble or is there a foundation of free cash flow and responsible revenue growth supporting equity prices? Well, I don't think it's a bubble. I think there, there are certain elements of the market, maybe telecom, utilities, uh, to a lesser extent, maybe staples. You might call that um, frothy. I don't know if I'd call it a bubble. Um, Those are, uh, you have very predictable cash flows in a world of negative interest rates and low interest rates. It's extraordinarily attractive. We looked at valuations in our report this morning. We look at valuations. They're high, but they're not extraordinary. They're not nifty 50. They're not nifty 50 type uh, uh, of events. But listen, I I think you are, in many 
ways, this is the bull market that no one loved. The, the people who have largely been driving the bull market have been corporations mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, there's not been a lot of retail flow at all. I want to talk now about the philosophy that we've had, which is the mass criticism of the elites, is this has been a central bank solution that's only benefited the upper 1%. Uh, maybe I use the Pew number, Pew Research upper 7%. It's been an elite benefit, right? It has. And I think that's what you saw, you've seen so far in the... With Senator Sanders and Mr. With Senator Trump. Sanders and Mr. Trump. And, and you're seeing it with Brexit. You're seeing it with uh, the five-star movement in Italy. You're seeing it. It, it is mm. a global... The populism is a global phenomenon. I think right. it, it gets back to this idea that there's been a lot of things that have been part of the intellectual orthodoxy. Uh, open borders, free trade, uh, negative interest rates now, that people are starting to say, gee, I, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, I know this may be good for you, uh, you know, the, <laughs> Mr. Politician or Mrs. Politician, but I'm not so sure it's good for me so sitting here uh, in the middle of the country. If we continue this, if we have a, you know, Bill Gross has talked about a continued financial repression, low real rates, the frustration of well-meaning policymakers buried in their orthodoxy and within a static milieu, do we go back, forget about nine years back, do we go back to a global economy that harkens to the 30s? the 20s, or even back to the 19th century. It might, just to the extent to which there's going to be a political... I think you're already seeing the political reaction. These things can't happen in a vacuum, right? You know, I, I'm not particularly a big fan of um, uh, the idea of income inequality, uh, although there's no question that it's widening, uh, that, <laughs> that it's not widened over the past seven or eight years. Mm. And I think that's going to re result in, in very significant political changes. Right. That may not happen right away, but Brexit, in many mm. ways, in my opinion, was... <clears throat> kind of the first domino. I that. put out on Twitter uh, this weekend, Chad Jones' terrific book on economic growth, math warning. It's got some math uh, in it, but it's iconic on this, this idea of productivity and where economic growth comes from. How does strategist research synthesize moldy productivity and flat industrial production? Well, it's, I mean, it's a great question. Productivity is a toughie, because, and I almost I never say... The numbers are wrong uh, because that's that's not a particularly uh, fruitful exercise. I do think the numbers are are probably understated, um, and that's just mainly as an equity person. I'm looking at profit margins. Margins, in my view, are one of the best indications of, right. uh, of productivity, profitability, uh, profitability, right? right? So, um, and there seems to be something that's off uh, because you have economic growth of around two percent, employment growth of of one. Uh, productivity at 0.3 just doesn't add up, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Still, though, I, I think that there is a. Uh, there, it's hard to have sustained productivity without capital investment. And until right. until companies feel more comfortable about mm -hmm. what the future is, it's the productivity is going to be under pressure. Let's bring in my colleague Michael McKee here on the ninth anniversary of the soiree. Michael. I feel terrible. I didn't get you anything for the anniversary, Tom. Um, <clears throat> Jason, you're on the supply side, talking about the uh, the, the lack of business investment. W what does it take to get that? The Fed has supplied all the credit necessary, but nobody wants it. It seems to be a demand failure. Well, listen, I, I think certainly there are things you can do um, that would allow monetary policy to work better. I think, if, I think in many ways monetary policy has been uh, sterilized by very tight regulatory policy on banks, and that's part of the reason why, that's why the velocity of money has continued to, to go down. I, I think ultimately liquidity 
is really a, a function of confidence. I think there's been a lot of hyperactivity out of Washington where you don't know what the rules are. Dodd-Frank, as, as, as far as I know, I don't think the bill has actually been completed yet. I mean, I think there are 398 provisions that have to be completed. That I don't think they've finished it yet. So it's hard to make long-term investments when you don't know what the rules are. So I do agree that there, there is a demand element of this, but um, I also believe in Say's law. I think supply creates its own demand. And uh, I do think if you did things that were uh, stimulative of capital formation, uh, I have a feeling demand would come back. You mean on the quickly. fiscal side? Yeah, fiscal side. I also think regulatory side. We've done a lot of easing on the monetary side, no question about it. But we've tightened on the, uh, tightened on the regulatory side. We've tightened uh, fiscally uh, as far as higher taxes. Um, and trade, I would say, is a wash. Uh, but we, we have to do more. Nobody's going to do it, though. Well, we'll see. I think both parties, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, there's two things that they're, they're talking about which I think are, are quite positive. There does seem to be some overlap. One is infrastructure spending, and I think that um, at least you get something for that from a productivity point of view as opposed to transfer payments, <clears throat> something like that. Um, I think they're also talking about some corporate tax reform, tax simplification. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are talking about that. That is just what, in my opinion, just what the doctor ordered. I, I think some simplification of tax code, some easing on the regulatory I, side would, would, would certainly, couldn't hurt. Didn't we have this conversation nine or ten or eight or five years ago? We did. We and did. They did. And it's, uh, I think politically now, it's uh, with growth this low, you may, you have, may have more of an incentive okay. to do it. Ninth anniversary, been looking back here. Michael McKee, where were you nine years ago? Uh, here. <laughs> we were all here watching what was going on in the markets. That was uh, yeah, August 9th was when BNP Paribas froze a couple yeah. of its funds and said you couldn't have your money back. Uh, we can't value the securities that are in them. And, that and then there was a bit of a delay, and, you know, that kicked it off. And then we had a four standard deviation move, as I recall, in T-Bill. As George Congalvis mentioned this morning, Libra, why don't you uh, jump in, Michael McKee, with Mr. Trennert here, Strategus Research. Well, I suppose we should ask because um, it is the, the, um, the story of the day hanging over the markets. I don't know. The minutes never really lead to a lot of trading. But uh, until 2 o'clock, everybody's going to be talking about it. You got Dudley on one side, uh, along with Dennis Lockhart, saying don't take September off the table. We've seen Fed funds futures pull forward a rate move to December uh, so far. You've got John Williams saying we need to ratchet down rate expectations because uh, neutral rate is much lower. What's a market participant to do? Yeah, I, listen, I, I think you have to go with uh, kind of what, what brung you here. And I, I think that's, uh, generally speaking, um, a disappointment as far as just managing expectations of what the Fed is going to do. As you remember, when the Fed tightened last December, they were talking about four rate hikes uh, this year. I, I think September is, in my own opinion, is extremely unlikely. I think we'll be lucky if we get one before the end of the year. I know you know, Mr. Dudley you know, certainly has a role. I think the Fed desperately wants to raise rates, but it's it's a very difficult proposition, I think, given where the economic growth is right now. Don't we have two different sort of decision trees going on here or, or effects going on? If you're sitting on a trading desk and the Fed is going to raise rates, you know, in September or December, you're adjusting your portfolio. But for the average American, with the neutral rate as low as it is, even if Williams isn't correct, and, and they go higher than you know one percent or something like that. Does, to the average American, it doesn't matter. I mean, no, this is this I, is this is the definition of market schizophrenia. Well, I think that's right. I, I think you know one of the things that probably gives the Fed a little bit more leeway, and I, I agree the average person doesn't care, except to the extent to which they might get a little bit more on their savings. So, you know, Tom and I were talking before about all the way up to seventy five basis well, points you know, or something. It's, like you know, that, it's yeah. something, right? Uh, but you've you've largely penalized savers. 
uh, over the last seven or eight years. But, you know, the dollar probably gives the Fed a little bit more uh, leeway. I, I, my opinion, the, the big the dollar is largely the, uh, the speedometer of how quickly the Fed uh, can tighten. And one of the problems at the start of the year was that the, the, the dollar strengthened so dramatically that you saw, um, obviously, big dislocations in both the credit markets and the stock market. You don't have that risk right, right now. Yeah. In the time we have left, and, and folks, this is sort of how we make the sausage here now, nine years ago, or when I first walked in the door. We'll say little stupid things to each other, and it's always brilliant because Mike and I look at totally different things. So, Jason, this morning, McKee goes, Tom, look at Portuguese yields. Hmm. Peter Bookvar over at Lindsay Group, Mike McKee writes up Portuguese yields, which has to do with the ECB. They may get a credit rating decline. And then I believe, Mike, Draghi can't buy Portuguese paper if they get the rate as part of their current program, they have to have investment-grade paper, and there's only one rating service that's still yeah. giving them a an investment-grade, and they're, they're, they're reassessing on October 21st, and uh, they're, they're not happy with the way things are going. Why, Jason, can't we clear markets? I would go back to a conversation I had with Secretary Geithner eight, nine years ago. Which is we're just going to delay and delay and delay. That's actually what we've done, right? It is, and 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 you know what what's going to wind up happening is I would describe it as schoolyard rules. I mean, ECB is making these things up as they go along. Uh, the only rules are there are no rules, uh, and we're not allowing markets to clear, and that's why you're you're not you're not getting the economic growth then, that you're hoping from the, the policies. To our audience who doesn't believe in Jason Trennett's bull market. How do you stay invested if it's schoolyard rules? Well, it's uh, it's just a lack of other alternatives. Uh, and uh, the, the good news, uh, I would argue, is that um, you do have very mild inflation and low interest rates, and, and net present value of future discount discounted cash flows is going to be higher. So the, that that can keep you in the markets. But frankly, um, it, it's hard to get really enthusiastic until we have, I think, some policy changes. I do think you're going to get that in November, regardless of who wins. I, I do think yeah. that, that whoever wins is going to have some political capital, and they're probably going to do some things on the fiscal side. And the yeah, Greg Vallier just published it 10 minutes ago. Greg Vallier um, making very clear he agrees with you that this may be we actually get tax reform. I think, listen, I, I think that infrastructure, um, I also, we also, and this isn't a particularly great way of going about it, I, I do think defense, aerospace and defense is in a, is a, is a growth market, it is, uh, and that's true globally, and that, yeah. that has to do with a lot of the other things we were talking about before as far as populism, nationalism, all the other things okay. that are, I think, a, a function of low growth. See you in nine years. I hope I come back sooner. I, hope, so, <laughs> I, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Jason Trennis, Strategus Research, who is given us wisdom longer than nine years. Just a few moments ago, we uh, were talking with Jason Trenner, and he made the observation that the dollar is sort of the speedometer for the Fed. Uh, you know, whether the dollar is going up or down seems to determine how fast or slow they think they are going to be moving. Uh, Daramar is uh, head of Forex strategy for HSBC. He's joined us here in the studio. If, if that is indeed the case, and you can argue it uh, if you want, uh, dollar basically has been stuck in cruise control for the last two years. Um, it, it goes up. Uh, you know, look at the dollar index. It goes up a tick. It goes down a tick. But basically, since 2014, it hadn't moved. Yeah, but prior to that, we had a 
big, big old move in the dollar, you know, and I think that's what got the Fed energised because they're trying to work out, look, why is inflation missing our target by this quantum? And when they looked into the numbers, what they found actually was that this, the strength of the dollar was, was one of the key constituents that explained why, why we were undershooting here, here in the US on inflation. So since then, you're right, they've, they've absolutely moved the dollar to being not kind of the key determinant of policy, but certainly you know, central um, uh, to, to the policy making decision. For me, what actually, where, where do we end up? We end up with this peculiar circularity because people say to me, oh, look, we've had good U.S. numbers. The Fed are going to raise rates. Let's buy the dollar. And then, of course, because you bought the dollar, it means the Fed are less likely to raise rates, which means you should sell the dollar, <laughs> which, of course, then opens the door to a Fed hike. So where, where do you end up? You end up with the dollar really capped top and bottom because of this self-correcting me- mechanism in terms of what it would mean for the interest rate outlook. Uh, which, uh, you know, as we've been saying, uh, market actions this summer around the Fed sort of define market schizophrenia uh, <laughs> in, in terms of how they think about this. But since we've been stable for two years, uh, the percentage gain is going to you know, fall out of people's calculations. Should we now think of it as no longer an inflation, that we're, we're not going to still be uh, importing disinflation because uh, we're not seeing changes, we're seeing stability. Yeah, I mean, on a year-on-year effect, we, we should that, that kind of dollar disinflation impulse should be fading from the story. But, you know, Fed speakers have said, and this is their kind of rule of thumb, that a, a 4 or 5% move in the trade weight of dollar is like a 25 basis point hike. And we're agonizing over whether they go once again this year, you know, as a market. So what you're saying is, well, that whole debate could be negated just by a 4 or 5% move in the dollar. What's, what, what would it take to get that kind of move in the dollar now? Uh, not too much. I mean, what did we do yesterday? We did about 1% yesterday um, after the Williams speech. Uh, you know, dollar weaker, uh, and then we did about one percent back. <laughs> so I mean, that, that we're at zero. So <laughs> yeah. that's what I mean. How do you get a sustained move of that size, absent a black swan that we can't? Well, forecast? I don't know. I mean, you, can you imagine Yellen at Jackson Hole? If she sounded a little bit more like her ex-deputy um, Williams, then then I think you get a significant dollar weakening move. And in, in a way, she might like that because that then opens up this door for an interest rate hike at, at some point, as, I, as we talked about the circularity. Um, and, you know, although a, a dollar move is equivalent to an interest rate move, they aren't actually identical because, of course, a, a, a tightening via interest rates allows you for this conventional easing at some distant point, whereas a tightening via the dollar, you, do, you, you haven't built in that kind of that reaction, future reaction space in the interest rate sphere. It's the outlier hour. We're here with Durham of HSBC, who's got an outlier call on weaker dollar. Steve Major with that huge call on, on 1.50 as well. As you sort this through into the end of the year and into next year, doesn't it just lead to tensions which lead to a currency war, whether admitted or not? Well, to be honest, I, okay, the, the short answer is I think a lot depends on the outcome of the U.S. election. Uh, you can envisage a situation if we go down the trade war route that currency war becomes part of that story, part of that reaction. I think absent that kind of outcome, actually what we've seen now is central banks beginning to accept that their ability to engineer currency weakness is, is on the wane. I mean, the Japanese have tried and failed yeah. pretty much throughout this year. You know, the ECB gave up back in March. They said, let's concentrate and, on credit. You know, I mean, we're in the showbiz uh, biz business here. So yesterday with Yen through 99, we talk about intervention in the yeah. game of when will they intervene and all that. If I say currency war is a proxy for quiet intervention, 
Are we seeing more of that now or less? I think we're seeing less. I think we're seeing less, not not because there's, there's a lack of desire to get an economic advantage through a weaker currency, but there's just a lack of ability to deliver it. I mean, the Japanese tried negative interest rates and, and the yen strengthened. Uh, they've, they've delivered extra QE, they've delivered another fiscal ease and, and, and the currency continues to grind stronger. So that, that is the difficulty. And actually for emerging markets, but you know what's interesting? Emerging markets, they were crying, we were nervous about them. And now actually you begin to see the likes of Brazil and others saying, well, actually, maybe we're getting a bit too much currency strength. Yeah, in I mean, you Mexican peso, Mike, from 19, yeah. uh, rallying to a strong 18.13 this morning. With the the safe haven flows that we're seeing today that seem to... You, you get safe haven flows and then you get the carry trade sort of mixed together. Mm. Uh, does anybody have any control over their exchange rate values these days? I mean, Chinese maybe, but other than that? Not really. Um, uh, but, but I think you make a good point. One of the peculiarities at the moment, even about this yen strength that we've seen, it's not particularly been a safe haven flow. I mean, you, you know, we've had all-time highs on, on the U.S. equity markets, and yet we have still have a strong yen. I, I think there's, there's a mix of drivers. Sometimes it's safe haven, sometimes it's carry chasing. Um, but for a lot of these currencies, it just seems to be a, a mean reversion, maybe, if you like. Um, and, you know, we talked with Tom earlier just about this idea. That could we go back to 80 on Dolly? And absolutely, if Abenomics fails. Um, but, you know, to sound like a great economist, equally, we could go to 140 <laughs> um, if, if they do helicopter money in Japan. So... I, don't, I wouldn't say policymakers have control over their currencies, but they still have an influence over their currencies, as, as we saw yesterday with those Fed speakers, to and fro in the dollar. Well, do you think anybody is, is trying to conduct currency wars? I hate that term, but, you know, uh, trying to manipulate their currency for their own good? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, well, I think many are. I mean, the U.S. does not want a stronger dollar, or at least the U.S. Fed does not want a stronger dollar. The ECB doesn't want a stronger euro. The Japanese don't want a strong, you know, sterling is a necessary part of an adjustment in the U.K. So to that extent, there is a currency war ongoing, but it, it's not one necessarily where you're actively trying to weaken your currency. You're just doing what you can to try and fight against any, any currency strength. You don't want to be the, the safety valve for weakness elsewhere. Yeah, and, and at this point, that's what would happen if somebody gave up. Everybody would uh, pile into the same trade. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, in, in a way, for me, euro dollar or euro upside is the path of least resistance at the moment because you don't get the sense that Draghi's actively talking down the euro. But you get the sense that the Japanese, for better or worse, are trying to get a weaker yen. And as I mentioned, the Fed don't want a stronger dollar. So that's why I think you're getting this grind higher in euro dollar, yeah. why we challenged 113 yesterday. Well, is that the view forward, grind? Is that, is that the singular word for Every, FX? Everything feels like a grind Every, at the moment. I, I agree that. What's yeah. the catalyst to get us out of grind? Is it the, the idiocy and simplicity of a Fed rate hike? Or is there some other moment? And particularly looking at Draghi and his choice set. Yeah, um, I, to be honest, I don't think there is an obvious grind. And when, when I talk to investors and, and they tell me about it, the idea of, of making easy money in currencies, you know, that feels like a thing of the past. You, we're not getting these big dollar trends, big yen trends, big euro trends. Maybe the one is sterling. I mean, I still think the market is mis, mis, misrepresenting sterling. Yes, it's weaker, but there's this suggestion that we've had a step adjustment, it stops. I think sterling carries on. We, we've got 110 end of next year on cable. That's like the, the most bearish on the street. HSBC, well, the most bearish stop. on sterling. I did, when did you make this decision? Uh, well, we had 120 since Brexit yeah. for the end of next year, and then about three weeks ago we revised down to It wasn't like in the car coming over here this morning? 
Oh, well, that's that's where I get most of my inspiration, but no, we, we've yeah, had I'm, it a couple of weeks. I'm going to be yeah. on with Mike and Tom. i got to stun him. You're at a 110 on Sterling? Yeah, most bearish. Stop. How will Prime Minister May, what will be her exceptionally limited choice set when we're at 114 migrating to your 110? Is she going to be want to make a I don't choice? Think Does she, she I care? Don't, I think she'll be actually okay with that. But bear in mind, this is a... a we talked about it, a grind. This is a, a grind to 110 over the that. course of 15 months. I'll go with that. It's a vector out 15 months. Great. Does, I think of Pebble Beach and the Japanese buying. What they buy? The Empire State Building? Mike, that a few was, years uh, ago? Rockefeller Center. Rockefeller Center. I mean, come on. Yeah. 110 yen? But that, that, a, does, excuse me. What? Uh, is HSBC going to move back, everybody back to pounds. London? I'm, I'm obviously I'm talking my book. I need to get back, but no. It's a, <laughs> look, I, what, what, it does exactly what One you say. Ten. You've got a current account deficit. Let's call it six percent of GDP in the UK. You've got to suck in capital to, if you like, finance it. To be simplistic, well, that how deficit it works. widened. That's what that sterling at one ten does. It makes it I makes agree. your Rockefeller Center look cheap. But does the vector of the current account, my single chart from Brexit, does that widen from seven percent out? No, not particularly, but I don't think it narrows very much. But it much. sustains. That's yeah, yeah. the key. What, folks, what we're talking here is inertial force. You've got these inertial forces of big money mass that most of us can't even visualize. You've got the inertial force of a chronic 6 or 7% current account deficit in, in England. And her single solution is your 110 sterling? Has to be part of the solution because otherwise, if you allow for the fact that that current account deficit may be sticky... You know, throwing out the old textbooks about how exchange right, rates affect right. these yeah, external, yeah, yeah. then you need to ensure that you've you've made your asset base attractive enough at a price okay. and exchange rate that brings that are capital in. Are you on in. speaking terms with your UK economists? What do they say if they get Deremeyer's one ten sterling? What does it do to aggregate real economy GDP in the United Kingdom? We're one big happy family. The big impact is on, of course, is on inflation. You know, that's you know you saw yesterday in the inflation numbers three percent. Oh, well, well above, yeah. So, you know, that. okay, Bank of England looks through that. That's where the big impact, because the net trade, I've just said, is not massive. So it's, yeah, uh, uh, that's where uh, we're Mike, Well, you're at six tenths now. So, you know, over 15 months, you get to 3%. If growth picks up two, then the Bank of England can take action. I mean, and they, that's what they know how to go. But that's mission accomplished, against. isn't right. it? I mean, that's th- th- this is mission so accomplished. So Theresa May goes, so that worked bring out. it on. Yeah. Dara Maher is going to be the new uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer here. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> it's extraordinary. I mean, these are folks. These are ginormous dynamics. I go back to the Wells Fargo acquisition just after Brexit. They paid cash for a building in London. Do you predict a boom London? I am personally, folks. I've been you know talking to people saying it, the doom and gloom on London. I just don't get right. One ten London is a global free for all, isn't it? it that, and that's exactly what we need. We that's you. You need to have for sale. Substantial discount, you know, come bias. Because if you do not, then you've got a problem. Then you have your balance of payments issue, you know. Because this, the weak sterling is not going to swing your current account balance by any big quantum. Right. Do you agree with Governor King that it's just a level change in sterling? And frankly, he is optimistic on the UK experiment? I think that could play that. It could play that way. It could play that way. This is a level change. It will have a, you know, destabilizing effect for a period. But this idea that we've had a one step from 150 to 130 and we're sorted from I, there on, it just doesn't see, work. I've got, Mike, this is typical. i got to see him for two hours before I figure out he's got a 110 call on cable. 
Do you think I should read the research notes every once in a while, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That would well, particularly because we have been right. So even for the sheer novelty of reading stuff that's right. <laughs> yeah. We would love it. Oh. When, when Mike and I are in London, we would love to have you and Steve Major yeah. in together. That would cool. be great. I'm happy well, to do you, that. You guys are so outlier. It keeps us entertained. Um, Al from New Jersey says um, the inertial things. It, it, we don't do physics on uh, in August. Row equals MV. It's August. Michael McKee and Tom Keane. Gregory Peters, it has been way too long with Prudential Fixed Income, joins us, and they put out an incredibly intelligent note. And Martin Haggerty yesterday at BlackRock had the same idea. We have never seen this in 20 years. Sticky inflation, which is where sticky inflation, or Martin said high vol inflation, is way above inflation inflation. That sticky <laughs> inflation is not in bond prices, is it? Uh, no, it's definitely not. Um, the other side of inflation, or the sticky inflation, as you call it, um, is that you have central banks uh, pressing down on uh, rates globally. And I think that is the key driving element in here. And just look at the reaction and the focus uh, the past two days on the Fed rhetoric and the, what's going to come out of the minutes. It's clear that the, uh, the markets are tied to what central bank policy is much more than uh, inflation at this point. What's sticky? Is that like the rents do? <laughs> is it like the stuff in inflation that we have to It's stuff that buy? matters, right? Yeah. So it's the less volatile uh, elements yeah. of, uh, of inflation. Uh, and uh, on the inflation side, as you well know, uh, a lot of the measures are driven by um, owner's equivalent rent and other types of things that are uh, more of a gauge than, a, you know, than anything else. Nobody talks about inflation in the markets these days. And uh, you, know, you look at market uh, pricing of inflation expectations, and it's very, very low. Um, there didn't seem to be anybody worried about sticky inflation out there. No, and it's been right to lean against it, too. So I thought it was interesting in Germany, uh, they, uh, they actually uh, printed pretty uh, healthy inflation numbers, uh, yet the five-year, five-year forward uh, uh, is lower today than it was at the beginning of the year. Uh, so the markets continue to, to move the prices down in terms of what the inflation expectations are. Uh, and, uh, and that's not completely unrealistic in my mind. Uh, so I was talking about earlier uh, what could really change this dynamic uh, is the fiscal side. Uh, uh, and so I think we really have to be vigilant around any change around fiscal policy, not only here in the U.S., but globally, as that could be one element to perhaps push inflation uh, to a higher level. We'll see, though. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps push. Uh, with that qualifying word, perhaps, uh, is there a trade right now or, do you, you know, just something you want to keep an eye on? Uh, I, I think it's too early. Uh, so there is definitely a trade and there's a lot of moving parts and uh, I'm not sure how it's going to play out per se. Uh, but, uh, but we've been in this uh, uh, very low yield camp for quite some time. And I think what could really change that is, is that 
change around the fiscal spending side. Uh, and it's a big if, right? So we're market players. We're not, uh, uh, we're not knee-deep in politics, and it's a but it seems politically like driven th- game. This year, you got to watch that more. I mean, you're going to be paying attention on November 8th. You're going to want to know who's elected, not just to the White House, but, but uh, in Congress. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. And and it seems if you parse some of the rhetoric coming out, which is difficult, of course, yeah. uh, um, uh, it, it seems like both sides, not that that yeah. matters per se, but both sides kind of are, are moving in that direction a little more than they were in yeah. the past. It, I call this the ninth anniversary of the crisis when we went four standard deviations on T-bill. Mike goes a couple of days earlier to the B&B Paribas uh, two funds uh, date. We've had a financial repression. Can you agree with Mr. Gross and Janice and others that the financial repression just continues for savers? I think so. I, 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 I think that's the world that we live in, which is inherently deflationary, right? So go back mm-hmm. to why inflation expectations are so low. I think what central banks miscalibrated is that dynamic, actually, that, that uh, low rates, negative rates – uh, actually have a, a disinflation, deflationary type of component to it, uh, much more than a stimulating one. Uh, and I think that's that's where, you know, it ties into financial repression. I mean, I, I look at it, Mike, and at 157, I mean, granted, we were below 150 the other day on the 10-year yield. Is there a scarcity of bonds? Could what's going on in Europe actually happen in the United States? Where there's a, you know, John Templeton said a shortage of paper? I don't think there's a shortage per se. Um, um, it, it's not the same same situation that they have uh, uh, in Europe uh, by, uh, by any yeah. stretch. Okay. Um, um, so I, I don't worry about the shortage, but, but there's a clear desire to own U.S. debt, U.S. treasuries in particular. Uh, and, uh, and why wouldn't you? All right. So not only are the yields really attractive vis-a-vis mm-hmm. other developed markets, it's the largest, most deepest, well-respected market in the world. Well, we, we don't have to you know, hedge currencies either being here in the United States, which seems to be a problem for others overseas. But even if you're buying into the treasury market, you're getting bupkis for yield. So would you rather be in corporates, especially – Exploring the high yield space, as they say. No, nah, well, that's the whole portfolio channel effect uh, yeah. that has worked guys, marvelously. Excuse me, the amount of, dra- the amount of jargon. <laughs> we're, we're channeling in our space. And continue to channel, Mr. Peters. No, I, you know, I'm trying to obfuscate maybe. But, um, no, I, it, clearly the, uh, the low yields are pushing investors out, not only the duration curve, so out maturities, but out the risk curve as well. Uh, and so you're seeing it most notably in investment-grade corporate bonds. Uh, that's more of a uh, easy step um, uh, than going into high yield. But you're seeing it in high yield as well. Um, and so um, you know, investors have no choice. They have absolutely no choice. If they need to uh, earn income, need to earn yield, they are forced into higher-yielding products, whatever that is. And that is what – quantitative easing is all about. Do you see bubbles, distortions out there? I actually don't. It, it, uh, the uh, the high-yield side is always front and center around that. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't see it. Uh, I, I look at leverage and aggregate on the high-yield side. I look at the false X energy. What do you uh, see there? Uh, on the false X energy, yeah. quite low, very yeah. low. 
Um, and so there was a clear bubble in retrospect uh, uh, on the energy space. So there was too much lent to energy companies. Um, so that is uh, uh, being cleaned up, if you would. But I don't really see uh, any real bubble, at least on the fixed income side. It's clear, though, investment-grade corporates is an area mm -hmm. that companies have really feasted on uh, the low-rate well, environment. Gregory Peters with us with uh, Prudential. What is the linkage of foreign exchange to yields? I mean, I, I get the Irving Fisher thing, but do you just assume weaker currency, higher yields? No, not necessarily. Um, uh, so what's amazing about this uh, th this market is that over the past uh, several years, clearly the uh, the adjustment mechanism has been the currency market. Um, um, and so you saw that most prevalently uh, on the EM currency side last year. Uh, that was a powerful uh, and much-needed adjustment, and, and it allowed those countries uh, to operate uh, uh, much better uh, as a consequence this year. What you're seeing this year, I think, uh, uh, what is quite interesting is where the negative yield environment is forcing uh, money out of those jurisdictions. So it's creating capital flight into the U.S. market. Um, and so that's where the currency is related, and that's what you're seeing in Japan. So um, just money having to move out to seek mm -hmm. yield, to get return, even with the, the cross-currency basis, which I know you're focused on, Tom, um, investors still have no choice. Uh, uh, and so that is, I, I, I think, a big driver of the currency market in here. Is central bank policy broken or no longer effective then? I mean, you seem to be arguing it's effective in doing what they said it would do, which was force investors to seek yield. Yeah, I'm not sure what that benefits ultimately, though, from a real economy standpoint. Um, so I, I, I would I actually personally believe in uh, what our firm uh, is uh, also quite concerned around the negative yield environment and the real impact that's having uh, and the efficacy of that policy. That doesn't um, work. And uh, that doesn't work. Yet what you're seeing, particularly in Japan, just can continued pressing on that pedal. Pressing. Uh, you, you, you saw uh, the BOE, I think, um, uh, be overly aggressive early on, kind of jump the shark, if you would, um, uh, last month. Uh, so I you know this policy, while it's widely accepted as not being positive, uh, central banks are still doing it. And then you get to this word grind, which I know is a financial word. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're in, right? It's a grind. It's a grind unless, unless there is some shock to the system, albeit um, – uh, well, it would be through inflation. Well, so that's why inflation is so key. That's why fiscal policy I mean, is how so do, key. Mike, Mike, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this is critical. How do you respond to 3 or 4% inflation in the United Kingdom? That's got a knock-on effect to your world by definition. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, what then? I mean, we talked about fiscal. Absent of absent fiscal, what should central banks do? Should they, uh, at this point, say no more negative yields, and then do what? Raise rates to see how that works. What do they do? Uh, that's a good question, right? It's always easy to complain about right. the current policy. So, what what I hear you there, uh, but but uh, but if you're going to be aggressive around your rate policy on the central bank side. I think it's a 
a wasted opportunity if nothing's done on the fiscal side. Uh, and so uh, central bank policy with negative rates and highly accommodative uh, policy uh, and QE uh, in a vacuum is ineffective. So that's why I'm really focused on the fiscal side, because that will allow, perhaps allow, better inflation and growth dynamics to come out uh, if the fiscal side follows. So I don't have a – I mean, raising rates doesn't make sense, right? All the economic models tell you that that's not how it is, right? Uh, uh, but, but going so negative and increasingly negative, uh, uh, what has a real effect, and we know it has an effect on the banking system – which is the tried and true place where you extend credit to get the economy to grow. So Jackson Hole will be interesting, right? So they're, yeah. uh, you know, they're looking at this. And the Fed has been, I think, somewhat on the forefront uh, in talking about it and much more cynical and critical around it. Sure, they have the luxury versus some other central banks. But, uh, but I uh, definitely respect and admire that they've been thinking about this much more critically than some of their counterparts across the globe. Can you – I mean, this has been forecast forever, as, uh, as Tom and I know, uh, the end of the bond market rally. Can you actually see it? Can you game out when this is going to end? Or do you just go along for the ride? Well, I wish I could <laughs> game it out, as you say. Um, but I think we're all along for the ride to a certain degree. Yeah. That's not to say we're trapped. So, you know, in my mind, you know, the closer we get to fiscal moves, uh, the more we get a sense from the Fed, as an example, that, uh, you know, they're looking to normalize policy, what, uh, whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, then I think, think uh, you know, yields have a chance of moving higher. But let's not forget, there is a demographic issue here. There's a global growth issue here uh, that, uh, that will constrain rates. Yeah. Uh, and so for all the things I worry about, rates moving powerfully higher right. is definitely not one of them. From where you sit, and this is on the issue side, we talked the strategy of the yield, how to make money side too much. What does a CFO do? They have to issue debt in this milieu, right? I mean, literally to keep their job. Do you just assume record issuance? Yes, yes. And so the after-tax cost of capital on investment-grade corporate debt is zero. So yeah. if you can't beat a hurdle rate of zero, then it begs the question of why you have the uh, CFO well, job a, in the first from place. From a Medigliani-Merton standpoint, what is your presumed, just general statement, amount of debt on a big multinational corporate balance sheet? It's not 30%. I get it. That's too much. But do you have that in your head? Do you have like a... You know, a bogey that everybody's sort of got to aspire to. No, I think what I, what I think each business is different, uh, and so the more yeah, cyclical yeah, businesses yeah, obviously yeah. Uh, uh, can uh, hold a lot less than uh, the more stable types of businesses. Yeah. But either way, uh, it makes sense, assuming the debt stock doesn't go to extraordinarily high levels, to to take advantage of these low interest yeah. rates. Uh, the issue that we're having, though, from from an economy standpoint and a corporate standpoint, is that companies are borrowing, but what are they doing with those proceeds? They're not plowing Finan it no, back into the business. Financial engineering, yeah. They're, uh, uh, yeah. Right, but they're buying back stock, right. which is not helping anyone other than the shareholders. It helps the CEO keep his job. 
it does. And make its uh, hurdle rate and all that. I mean, it yeah. but okay. uh, but you know, I think that's the issue that we have is not being plowed back into capex and other things that could I, help the broader economy. What I love when you show up is I come up with like four charts in my head. I got one <laughs> of them right here. You'll see it on Bloomberg TV tomorrow. Gregory Peters, thank you so much. He is with uh, Prudential. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.